BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, Inquiring Minds listeners. This is producer Adam Isaac. I have some seriously exciting news for you. On October 28th in San Francisco, we are doing a live show with none other than Adam Savage from Mythbusters. But guess what? I'm not done because this is a double feature. Not only will you get to see us, but you'll also get to see your other favorite science podcast, The Story Collider. They'll be featuring four true personal stories about science, one told by our own Indre Viscontis. So look, this is going to be an amazing night. Go to bayareascience.org and search for Inquiring Minds or click the link in the description to this episode. I promise you do not want to miss this. It's Friday, September 26th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is brought to you by Backblaze Online Backup. Get your risk-free trial at backblaze.com slash inquiringminds. What is Backblaze? Backblaze is an online backup company which backs up all the data from your computer quickly, easily, and securely, all for just five bucks per month. All that happens in the background without affecting what you're working on. Back up all your movies, music, photos, and files, and get access to them anywhere with Backblaze's Web Restore and iPhone and Android apps. Get a risk-free trial today at backblaze.com slash inquiringminds. This episode is also sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code MINDS at checkout. That's M-I-N-D-S. A better web starts with your website. And today's episode is also sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's top professors to your fingertip. For a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one course, The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, by former Inquiring Minds guest Neil deGrasse Tyson. To find out more, go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. So this week, world leaders met in New York to discuss what to do about climate change. It was the first major summit since 2009, 
And last week on the show, we talked to Vice President Al Gore, who finds hope in the fact that the summit also drew large crowds of protesters and seems to have galvanized the grassroots effort to get our leaders focused on solutions. This week, we wanted to hear from journalist Naomi Klein, whose new book, This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate, has just been released. Naomi Klein is an award-winning journalist, syndicated columnist, and author of the New York Times and number one international bestseller, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, which was published in 30 languages and has over a million copies in print. And her first book, No Logo, Taking Aim at the Brand Bullies, was also an international bestseller with 25 languages and more than a million copies in print. With this new book, she argues that we're actually already past the point of no return, and that either we must radically change our economic policies now, or the climate will do it for us. What's more, she points out that the effects of climate change that we're just now experiencing couldn't have come at a worse time in history. That in the late 80s, just as we were beginning to understand how our emissions could affect our planet, and when we began to lose all plausible deniability, we were also entering a period of time in which we were negotiating historic free trade agreements and that the free market, privatization, deregulation, government cuts, and so on were the central ideology in our society. And so she argues that the combination of these two forces put us into this situation between a rock and a hard place, and now we are at the tipping point. She says that we may need to make radical changes in how we live as a society or the world will do it for us. Here's a quick clip from the interview. We act as if we live in a rational world where if you just suggest the right policies and you point that the technologies are available, then of course our policymakers will just do it. The problem is our policymakers don't believe in that model of governing anymore. Um, and we have a clash on multiple levels where of course we need to regulate fossil fuel companies, but we can't. So we set up complex carbon markets and hope that the market will fix it for us. But then we also have the whole globalization free trade model that has been accelerating in this key period while that climate negotiations have been going on. And in the book, I talk about this sort of these two solitudes of international negotiations of climate on the one hand and trade on the other hand. And climate is sputtering along and, you know, can't seem to, you know, get anything done and, and, and nothing is binding. And then on the other hand, you, you have the free trade globalization investor rights process and it's just leaping from victory to victory locking in binding agreement after binding agreement, setting up global institutions like the World Trade Organization while we're told that, oh, it's impossible for governments to agree on anything. So what do you think? Well, her argument here is is one that I broadly agree with. I mean, the idea is the problem is what's sometimes called neoliberalism or what's sometimes called, you know, free market ideology. I think I, I I think the latter fits fits better for the definitions that I like to use. And until you reverse the dominance of that ideology, you don't fix a problem like climate change, which is clearly one that requires a government intervention. And I mean, I, I accept that in broad outline. I think that the evidence is clear that the reason we can't do anything about this or the United States can't do anything about this is because of free market ideologues that keep shutting it down. So, I mean, I'm actually, I, I, I feel like, um, I'm in agreement with her, even though I was thinking I might not be. Well, that's our interview today. But before we get there, let's touch on a couple of other science stories that made the headlines this week or people that are talking about. So what's been on your mind? Well, the universality of crying babies across the mammal kingdom. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, we, we know on this show, we share a lot 
with other animals, especially with mammals. And how could that be otherwise? Because we share a common ancestry with them. That's basically the point of evolution. And, you know, in the course of evolution, some traits in different species seem to have evolved fairly recently. And so those traits are only in those species. But then there are sort of what are called conserved traits, meaning that a whole group of members of, of different species that are closely related might share these attributes, like, say, mammals. And one such trait, it turns out, might be the cry of an infant, not just a human infant, but a puppy, a kitten, and so forth. So this is going off of a story in New Scientist reporting on some recent research. Two biologists named Susan Lingle of the University of Winnipeg and Tobias Reed at Midwestern University tested this idea. And what they did was they played recording of infant calls, infants from various different mammal species. Uh, and the recordings were heard by wild mule deer, which they had found in the wild in Canada. And they observed what the female deer mothers did. And they found that they responded not just to the calls of baby deer, but to the calls of, here's a list, baby dogs, baby cats, baby fur seals, and baby humans. In fact, according to New Scientist, Quote, the infants in these species all call at roughly the same pitch. So maybe there's something about the sound of an infant cry that mothers across species can just recognize. The article ends by speculating that, quote, different animals may experience similar emotional states. Uh, and they go on to say that those could be triggered by cer certain sounds. Well, you know, I certainly have of the mind that babies are very manipulative <laughs> and that they will do anything to get themselves taken care of. And it actually explains why sometimes you see cross-species maternal instincts, you know, being kicked in. That's really weird. You know, like, for example, there's this great video of I think it's a lion, a lioness who uh, takes care of a baby monkey um, while also hunting the parents of that monkey. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a heartwarming video, but it makes sense. If, you know, these babies are, it's adaptive to sort of sound the same so that if you do lose your parents, uh, maybe someone else will come in and take care of you. But on the other hand, I also feel like I can pick out my baby's cry from a hundred other babies' cries. I mean, maybe I'm delusional, but it feels that way that, you know, his cry I'm particularly attuned to. And I don't know if that's something that, um, you know, developed because I hear him cry more than any other baby yeah. um, or because there's also something adaptive about, a, you know, a baby getting his mother um, interested. I don't know. It's interesting. It's, it's, I think it's still an open question. Hmm. Oh, I think it's interesting research. <laughs> but, you know, and, you know, there's this whole uh, body of work, too, amongst musicians that suggests that the reason that we get the chills or a very visceral reaction to music might be because music sometimes mimics a baby in distress. So there's mm -hmm. there's whole that hmm. offshoot, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I think that all kinds of, you know, I think it's in Plato or talking for the first time about certain chord progressions and how they produce certain moods in people. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I mean, the guitar back, solo. Yeah, it goes back really far, so. Yeah, it takes the term wailing on the guitar to a very, uh, you know, literal meaning. But um, anyway, I came across a study, uh, this, I, I came across it now, but it was actually published back in August in a journal called Bioessays about how gut bacteria can manipulate you into eating foods that they thrive on, um, sometimes at the expense of your own health. So uh, this is a paper that was written by Joe Alcock, Carlo Maley, and Athena Actippus um, in the journal Bioessays in August. 
biologist. And according to the paper, they suggest that the microbiome in your gut might have two potential strategies at manipulating you. One is by generating cravings for foods that those particular bacteria specialize on or that suppress their competitors, um, and or inducing what they call dysphoria, or a, basically a bad mood until we eat food that enhances the fitness of these bacteria. Um, so, you know, we know, we do know that your gut is connected to your brain uh, via the vagus nerve, uh, and that, that you, there are signals that can be sent in both directions. Um, so it's entirely plausible in terms of mechanisms. And they even suggest that what might be happening is that these microbiota might actually be changing your taste receptors via some of these pathways. Um, and, and, you know, it's, so that's interesting. Now, the cool corollary of this work is that they also suggest that there's a pretty easy fix possibly to the problems of obesity and unhealthy eating. And that is to deliberately change your diet to alter your microbiome. Um, you know, and they, and they also say, well, you can even do it, you know, using prebiotics or probiotics or antibiotics or fecal transplants. We've talked to, uh, to Mary Broach about that. <laughs> um, and so there are ways in which you can change your gut bacteria. And uh, the idea is, is that if you change your gut bacteria, you might actually also change what foods you crave and thereby, in, you know, make you a, a healthy eater. You are what you eat, right? I mean, this is, you know, <laughs> there are all these studies showing that people are more uh, microbe than themselves, right? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, like the ratio is like nine to one in terms yeah. of uh, you know cells, yeah, cells versus bacteria. So the idea that they have influence shouldn't be that shocking, actually, when you think about it. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But I think I, I do. I, I do wonder how quickly this is going to become a diet fad. You know, we already. Oh, hear, I think it already is. Yeah, I think it already say, is a diet fad. You know, you, you eat, eat for your, your probiotics. Microbiome. Sure, sure. But I think obviously, like everything else in the body, it's way more complicated than just eat some extra yogurt. (laughs) Um, You know, I think I think there's still a lot of work that has to be done to really understand exactly how uh, different foods can affect the, the lives of the microbiome and vice versa. Got it. Okay, so with that, let's take a short break. And we'll be back with my interview with Naomi Klein. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Backblaze. So what is Backblaze and why should you use it? Basically, what it does for you is it gives you unlimited online backup for all your computer's data. And you need this because of potential for computer crashes, your hard drive gets stolen, natural disaster strikes, you just, you know, forget about files. So how does it help? What Backblaze does is it backs up all the data on your computer, making it accessible online. That could be music, movies, photos, videos, working documents. It's all backed up. It has over 100 petabytes of data backed up for its customers right now, enough to hold 1,330 years worth of HDTV video. So you really would never have to worry about losing your data again. And you can get a risk-free, no credit card required, fully featured trial at backblaze.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's backblaze.com slash inquiringminds. Today's episode is also sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. What's so great about Squarespace? It's super easy, it's very simple, but it still has beautiful design options. So if you've ever wanted to make a website but felt a little overwhelmed with how it all works, Squarespace is perfect for you. You can literally drag and drop content onto your new website. Plus, there's a 24-7 chat and email support and every site comes with an online store automatically. 
Plans start at just $8 a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. For a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code MINDS at checkout. That's M-I-N-D-S. So show your support for Inquiring Minds and start building your website today. Finally, today's episode is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's top professors to your fingertips. They have over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more. And they're available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. The best thing is you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without pressures of homework or exams. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of its courses, The Inexplicable Universe Unsolved Mysteries by former Inquiring Minds guest Neil deGrasse Tyson. And if you listen to this, I won't give too much away, but for those who are fans of the Cosmos series hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson, what I think you will find when you listen to these great courses are some great preludes. In some sense, I think some of the ideas that were expressed in Cosmos you can see in a germinal form in uh, this lecture series. So check that out. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Naomi Klein. Thank you. You've just released a book whose uh, publishing coincides with the UN Climate Summit, one of the biggest meetings about the climate that we've had, and in fact, the biggest in terms of world leaders and involvement since the ill-fated Copenhagen Summit in 2009. Why did you choose to release your book this week? Um, you know, well, this was actually when we were, it was actually supposed to be out earlier. <laughs> um, it was supposed to be out a, a good season earlier, and I sort of blew that deadline. Um, and uh, so it was always going to be coming out this season, but I did really want it to come out uh, before before the summit, you know, in, in part just because, you know, it's, you know, it's hard to get the, the, the media to talk about climate change. And, and I thought that, uh, there being a summit with world leaders and uh, there would be a brief window when it might be a little bit easier to, to get, um, you know, U.S. mainstream media outlets to, to say the words climate change. <laughs> um, so that was part of it. But the bonus of it has just been that this has, is turning into such an incredible, uh, you know, couple of weeks of mobilizing. Uh, and, uh, and it's, it's been a wonderful context in which to release the book because the thesis of the book is that we can't do any of this without building broad-based social movements. So the fact that there have been so many people in the streets and, and that there is a kind of rising militancy, um, where people are really ready to take on the polluters, uh, has just been a wonderful, um, coincidence. <laughs> And and certainly there has been a lot of media attention, as you say, this week on climate change. Um, and your book, in some ways, is and is antithetical to some of the reports that are coming out, because in your book you suggest that we really need to eschew capitalism; that capitalism is one of the fundamental problems or the obstacles um, before us as we fight this change in climate. Uh, whereas other reports seem to come out saying, you know what, it's easier than we think, we don't really have to make such massive sweeping changes. So how do you respond to some of those reports? Well, I mean, some of the reports are really good. I mean, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're doing, they're, they're laying out the fact that it's, 
it's definitely smarter to invest in prevention. It'll be less expensive if we, if we act now than if we wait, um, until the climate is more unstable. And there have been other reports like this in the past, um, you know, arguing that it's, you know, a relatively small percent of, of GDP to, uh, to, to act decisively. So there's parts of these reports that I really agree with, but what's strange about it is that they're coming from institutions and individuals like, well, the, like the, the, one of these reports is published by the, by the International Monetary Fund. Um, uh, another is backed by former Mexican president Felipe Calderon and the head of the Bank of America and so on. And it sort of reminds me, I, I, I had the opportunity to speak at the same conference as, as, uh, Former President Bill Clinton, a, a couple of months after he left office, and the the conference was in Europe, and it was about fighting poverty, and um, and Clinton gave this great speech uh, about how easy it was to eliminate world poverty, and the mantra of his speech, what he kept going is, uh, what he kept saying was, "It's easy. This is peanuts, right?" And I, I find myself sitting in the audience going. Okay, well then, why didn't you do it when you were president? <laughs> um, if it's so easy, um, and of course, the point is, is that these institutions that that are you know putting out these reports um, are you know, whether, whether it's the Bank of the Bank of America or the IMF. Um, it's not just that they're not taking the measures described; it's that they're taking us in the wrong direction. You know, they're in, uh, Bank of America is 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 investing heavily in in fossil fuels and extreme energy extraction, and the International Monetary Fund is is applying brutal austerity all over Southern Europe, which in turn is leading uh, countries like Spain and and Greece and Portugal to roll back their green energy programs and drill for oil and gas uh, as a way out of debt. So. The issue is not that a green economy can't grow. I, I, of course, I think it can. It's just that in order to do the kinds of things that are outlined in these reports, you actually need a managed economy. You need to decide what you want to grow. You need to think long-term. You need to plan. Um, and the argument I'm making is that all of these are lost arts to our governments. And, and, and the central logic of our time is this kind of mindless short-term growth that, that makes no distinction about where the growth is coming from. Uh, and that's what is ultimately incompatible. It's not that you can't have a growing green economy. It's that if you're locked within this short-term logic that all growth is good and that it's the role of government just to pursue that growth, then that is going to keep us hurtling down the, role, the road paved with fossil fuels. So it does uh, sound through most of your book that you're really advocating for the government being very much the leader in these changes and not in the privatization of our energy uses and so on. So can you tell us a little bit about where that thinking comes from? And given that governments have seemed to be relatively ineffective, even when paying lip service to a green economy, like, for example, our current president, um, it's still, it, you know, for most of us watching this, it, it feels like we should be a lot further along than we are in terms of how our reliance on fossil fuels. So why do you think that the government really is the answer when it, it hasn't been in the past? Well, I think the, the central message of the book is that we aren't going to do any of the things we, we need to do, whether incremental you know, or large scale, um, you know, without a, a, a really full-throated ideological battle about what kind of government we have and what kind of values we want to govern our societies. Um, what I'm arguing is that 
climate uh, scientists, biologists um, are familiar with the mistiming and mismatching that we're seeing as a result of climate change that, uh, and we're seeing this in multiple species where animals are falling out of step with their food sources because of changes in the climate. And this is, you know, very, very heavily studied. Um, and well, I'm arguing that, that the, the real reason we have failed to deal with this crisis has to do with another kind of mistiming or mismatching, which it ha- is affecting the human species. Um, and that is that this crisis landed at our laps at the worst possible historical moment, that James Hansen testified before Congress in 1988. And that was, you know, that was the climate breakthrough moment. That's when, that's when we lost all plausible deniability. And, 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 and that was the moment that you know, created the, the, the IPC, the, the creation of the IPCC, the beginning of the, of, of the UN negotiations. Um, and so in the book, I look at what else was happening in that period. Okay. okay so in 1988 was the, also the signing of the, the first major free trade deal between Canada and the U.S. that eventually was expanded into NAFTA. Um, it was that a year after that was the year that the Berlin Wall fell. This was the year that Francis Fukuyama a, a, a declared history over. Um, and the ideological battle won. And there was only one way that governments, um, would function. And this was the free market model of private Privatization, deregulation, cuts to government spending, free trade. And so the, so the mismatch is that the things that we, the sensible things that we all know we need to do, uh, to respond decisively to climate were in a direct clash with this ideological project. So we've gone through this whole process of, you know, and, and I think the climate world has been oddly sort of willfully blind about this context. So it, we act as if we live in a rational world where if you just suggest the right policies and you point that the technologies are available, then of course our policymakers will just do it. The problem is our policymakers don't believe in that model of governing anymore. Um, and we have a clash on multiple levels where, of course, we need to regulate fossil fuel companies, but we can't. So we set up complex carbon markets and hope that the market will fix it for us. But then we also have the whole globalization free trade model that has been accelerating in this key period while cl- that climate negotiations have been going on. And in the book, I talk about this sort of these two solitudes of international negotiations of climate on the one hand and trade on the other hand. And climate is sputtering along and, you know, can't seem to, you know, get anything done and, and, and nothing is binding. And then on the other hand, you, ha- you have the free trade globalization investor rights process and it's just leaping from victory to victory locking in binding agreement after binding agreement, setting up global institutions like the World Trade Organization while we're told that, oh, it's impossible for governments to agree on anything. Um, and it's taking us in exactly the wrong direction. It is leading to an emissions explosion because that model has been pretending that the climate crisis does not exist. Uh, and, you know, it's, and that means that we've adopted essentially the highest emission model for how to build a global economy. And, you know, in your book, as a case in point, you use the example of Denmark, uh, which, as you say, has among the most successful renewable energy programs in the world, with 40% of its electricity coming from renewables, mostly wind. Uh, and you argue that, in fact, they, in today's world, Denmark might not have been as successful because of the free trade agreements that seem to be antithetical to the policies that it implemented in the 80s to get to where it is. Exactly. Yeah. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. And it's interesting. Well, because Denmark 
Denmark's renewable energy uh, explosion was not a result of concerns about fossil fuels as much as it was um, born out of the anti-nuclear movement um, in the in the 70s and 80s. Uh, so the Scandinavian countries have very strong anti-nuke movements. And as part of saying no to nuclear power, there was this, there was the, the momentum to provide clean alternative energy to prove that you didn't need nuclear power. And that is what led to, um, the, 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 the extraordinary proliferation of wind as a source of energy in Denmark. And, um, but also a much of it locally controlled, um, and much of it run by cooperatives and local municipalities. And, Done with um, a lot of of incentives for, the, for for companies and and cooperatives to set up um, lots of local supports of the kind that are actually illegal under free trade agreements. You know, when we were fighting free trade deals, and I was very you know involved in those fights when uh, a couple decades ago. Uh, the, the crux of it had to do with the fact that we believed that in signing these deals, we were losing our right to have our own industrial policies, that we were essentially signing that away. And what I live in Ontario, I live in, in, in Toronto, and um, we have uh, learned this the hard way, that, that how much we've lost, because uh, Ontario adopted um, – one of the most uh, uh, ambitious green energy programs in the world and the most ambitious in, in North America in 2009. It was lauded by, you know, everybody, including Al Gore, who said it was the best on the continent. Um, it had really steep uh, targets uh, to get off coal. Um, and it, it the way that the Liberal Party um, of Ontario got political buy-in for this was that this was happening. This was introduced in the midst of the economic crisis and, the, and in the midst of big layoffs in the uh, car manufacturing sector. Um, so this was, so included in the green energy plan was a requirement that the that anybody who wanted to benefit from Ontario's feed-in tariff program had to source 40 to 60 percent of their, um, you know, equipment, their solar panels, their wind turbines uh, locally to Ontario. So that, it, so it was a jobs creation program, and it really worked. And in the book, I profile, uh, it, you know, 31,000 jobs were created, and I profile. A solar a solar plant uh, just outside of Toronto that actually set up shop in in an auto parts factory that had closed down. Um, so it was this great symbol of you know, of of transitioning from that old economy to the new economy. And indeed, um, many of the workers in this plant used to work for Chrysler, Magna, the auto parts workers. So it was just it was just like all the symbolism was right. This factory is, you know, may well close down. They're already scaling back their plans. I went, you know, when I went and interviewed, uh, uh, the, the director, you know, the, the place was just absolutely despondent. And the reason for that is that, um, Canada's, uh, this Canada has been successfully challenged uh, at, at the World Trade Organization for having these, these by local policies, for having, having these requirements that parts of the, of our solar and wind industry be, be made in Ontario. So Japan and the European Union took, uh, Canada to the World Trade Organization and said that we were violating our WTO requirements that ban discrimination. Against, uh, uh, foreign firms. I mean, this is the sort of the, 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 the trade world has adopted the language of the civil rights movement. And, um, and, and so foreign companies were felt discriminated against and, and they won. 
uh, and, and the Canadian government didn't defend Ontario's program because the Canadian government is much more interested in advancing the, the Alberta tar sands. Uh, and, but, you know, it's a pretty vivid example of how these worlds are colliding. And I quote Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist in the book, um, just talking about how absurd this is. You know, he says, you know, how, how ridiculous that we would leave the fate of the planet in the hands of what he calls silly lawyers who didn't even understand the problem when they wrote these rules. Well, and, and also in, in speaking of absurdities, uh, Toronto did elect uh, Mayor Rob Ford, who went around and, you know, wanted to get rid of the car tax and other green initiatives and public transport. You're like the first person um, who's and, ever know. mentioned Rob Ford and not <laughs> talked about crack. So thanks for oh, that. Uh, yeah, he was before he got to crack. It was I'm from Toronto, too. Oh, so okay. I, I've, uh, <laughs> I watched in dismay first when he tried to dismantle the public transportation. Um, but anyway, we don't need to go there. But what I did want to talk about a little bit is, you know, Canada is a relatively small small country compared to the US and China, etc, these big players. And um, I can understand if Canada wants to align itself with some of these big players economically, in order to get things done. And, and as you suggest that sometimes we need uh, bigger entities like governments to step in when we're trying to make sweeping changes. So I wanted to ask you to comment on something that I read in The Economist last week, um, that they, they note that China and the US and the EU together spend 140 billion dollars a year on subsidies for renewable energy. That sounds like a lot of money to me. And so it makes me wonder if this is something that, you know, you see as a move forward, or is it ineffectual? I think it, it's a now, I do think we need to subsidize renewable energy. I don't think it'll need to be subsidized forever. Um, we, you know, we, globally, we spend close to a trillion dollars on fossil fuel subsidies. So that number starts looking a little less <laughs> impressive, um, in the context of how much we're, we're spending, um, you know, try to put them out of business. Um, you know, we have very conflicted policies. Uh, and it's not that we're not doing anything right. It's that we're not moving in, anywhere near as quickly as, as we need to be moving. You know, Obama just announced some, you know, really good renewable energy uh, uh, programs and really good renewable energy supports. Uh, the issue is that, uh, you know, incremental change at this point is, it's not that it's, it's not that it's meaningless, but it is not going to get us where we need to go in time. Um, you know, we, we've, we've lost that moment. I mean, this is, this is the other point about the, the reason why, um, it, it brings us to, 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 to questioning the model of economic growth that we have. Uh, I quote Michael Mann, um, talking about the procrastination penalty, right? There's a weird way in which our discourse around climate change and climate policy has remained sta strangely static um, throughout these years of not just inaction, but moving in the wrong direction, right? You know, it started off pretty calm. And it's like, okay, we just need to like slowly chip away at this, you know, 2% reductions a year. And here's a pie graph and we'll do this and this and this. And it was all very, you know, it all seemed very reasonable. But the point is that since we started talking so reasonably in 1990, emissions have gone up by 61%. Um, and those emissions are sticking around. And so now if we want to have a 50-50 chance of staying below two degrees warming as our government's committed to do in Copenhagen, um, 
Now we need to cut our emissions so steeply and so fast that it does challenge that fundamental logic. That's the procrastination penalty, right? Um, if we had done it when we, when, when we lost that plausible deniability at the end of the eighties and beginning of the nineties, it could have been this slower incremental process. But now we're in the situation where there are no non-radical responses left. And we, and we're, we, we are, 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 are facing a choice between different kinds of radical options. And that's why I called the book, This Changes Everything, right? Like either we're facing radical physical changes to our natural environment, or maybe we're facing radical engineering responses in the form of geoengineering and trying to dim the sun, or we radically change our economy um, to become much more deliberate and we lower our emissions by eight to 10% a year. But the idea that we could just coast is not one of the options on the table. And that's why I think, you know, I argue that, you know, this moment in a weird way is is most challenging to sort of centrist liberals who really don't like people getting too excited about things and are always trying to split the difference. Um, because uh, the science really challenges that, okay, everybody just calm down approach to things. Mm -hmm. And and so you also lambast in your book, uh, some of these messiahs, as you call them, for potential messiahs, uh, billionaires that like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Richard Branson, who, you know, pr pr give lip service to wanting to make serious inroads in, in helping the climate, uh, helping fight climate change, and yet act behave in a different way. So for example, Warren Buffett, you um, note that he invests heavily in companies uh, that extract fossil fuels, uh, and, and are somehow related to the coal industry. Um, and Richard Branson, you know, owner of uh, a number of Virgin uh, branded airlines, uh, you know, he, he says that he wants to do this, and yet he adds more planes and increases the amount of emissions that his, you know, company puts into the atmosphere. Um, so can you can you talk a little bit about, you know, that kind of uh, sort of cognitive dissonance that these individuals seem to be facing? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I so I have this section of the book, it, um, with, with, on, on various forms of magical thinking, which is basically about the stories we tell ourselves to avoid the hard realities that we really need to be cutting our emissions as quickly as, as scientists are telling us we do. And, and, and one of those stories is that, you know, the market can do this and, and, and we can just sort of just put the right incentives in place and, and relax. Um, so that looks at, at the, you know, the, the, the sort of disaster of the carbon markets in Europe and the off and the and, and all the scandals associated with offsets. Another story we, we tell ourselves is that technology is going to save us. And you know, I spend a lot of time with the geoengineers and and look at the risks associated with that idea. Um, but 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 then there is th this piece that the billionaires are going to save us. And these are obviously interrelated because you know the the idea that the billionaires would save us is 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 very much linked to the idea that the market's going to save us and one of the ways the billionaires want to save us is through high-tech geoengineering um uh, uh uh research and both branson and gates have been um you know the the basically the the, the main funders of of uh of the whole geoengineering discussion um but uh the point of going after the track record of a, you know, a Richard Branson or a Gates or, you know, Buffett or Bloomberg, it's not, for me, it's not about pointing out their hypocrisy. To me, it's about pointing out that we can't, that, that we can't leave this to 
the goodwill of even the most benevolent billionaires. It, it to me, it's just another example of the failure of an unregulated response. And I, I, I do, I do spend a lot of energy on Richard Branson, um, not because I think he's such a bad guy, but all actually because I think he had a great idea. <laughs> I just think he executed it badly, and I don't think he he was the one who should have executed. And by that I mean, you know. Richard Branson got a lot of people's hopes up in 2006 when he announced at the Clinton Global Initiative that he had seen the climate light. Um, it, Al Gore visited him and gave him a personal slideshow, and he decided that, um, that we, you know, in his word, that we were facing apocalypse. And as somebody who owned, um, you know, a large airline, he knew he was part of the problem, and he also had fossil fuel burning trains. And so he decided, and he committed to spend one hundred. Hundred percent of the profits from those parts of the Virgin, uh, the Virgin machine that um, are 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 based on burning fossil fuels, the trains and the and the, and the planes, um, and spend all that money coming up with technologies that would, um, whether it would be a green, you know, carbon-free fuel or whether it would be uh, uh, other technologies, sort of changed it later on. It, it started off just being that it was all going to be about inventing a zero-carbon fuel, and then later it became just technologies to fight global warming. Now, it wasn't ever supposed to be charity. It was going to be, you know, investing through you know, venture capital, basically, in in the next energy breakthrough. Um, so he set up a couple of companies that were designed to find these breakthroughs. Well, so I audited it, you know, and I looked at, okay, we're at year eight of a 10-year pledge to spend. He said he would definitely spend $3 billion. And if he didn't make that much in profits in those sectors, then he would divert it from other sectors. So he's nowhere near that, okay? He's probably at around $300 million, And he told me that he he didn't, you know, he, he, he might reach a billion. I think that's extremely unlikely because um, we're at year eight and we're not even halfway there. Uh, that said, what's really significant to me is what Richard Branson has been doing while he has not been <laughs> solving the climate, climate crisis for us. Um, he's, he's gone on an airline buying spree. I mean, he's launched several new airlines, including Virgin America, including a Little Red, which is a domestic airline in, in England and, and, and also an Australian new, new airline. And we tallied up, um, know how much virgins uh, emissions had gone up in this in this same period and they're up 40%. Um so the, the reason why I say I don't think it's about you know whether these guys are hypocrites or not is that I think I think we do need to make the polluter pay. You know, I think you know when I hear that that Exxon made 45 billion dollars in profits in a single year, um I I find that tremendously upsetting because we need to capture more of those profits and and we need that money on a polluter pays principle to finance the transition away from fossil fuels that's what branson was proposing to do voluntarily um and clearly there there is an economic imperative that prevents that from happening because he's locked within the growth imperative right um he he feels the need to constantly expand because that's what multinational corporations do but that doesn't mean that we as citizens can't demand that our governments capture more of those profits and do exactly what richard branson said he was going to do voluntarily um so so my point in sort of auditing these guys and comparing their words with their actions is to say you know what these these are probably the most enlightened billionaires on the planet. I believe Michael Bloomberg really does 
understand the threat of climate change. I believe Michael Bloomberg even understands that in the long term, it's much smarter uh, to invest in preventing climate change than to deal with the costs later on. But in the short term, locked within the logic of our system, it's also the case that Michael Bloomberg invests his personal wealth in oil and gas companies. Um, and, 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 you know, what I found out to my great surprise is it's not just that he, you know, owns a few fossil fuel stocks. It's that he and his colleagues created a special investment firm to, to manage Bloomberg philanthropy and, and Michael Bloomberg's personal wealth, which is upwards of $30 billion. And that company, Willett Advisors, uh, specializes in oil and gas assets. So there's this, you know, if, if, if Michael Bloomberg, who's, you know, a UN climate envoy, who's all, you know, putting out reports about how the connection between climate and risky business cannot reconcile his personal finances with this, um, with, with what he understands intellectually, then we really cannot pretend that this system is rational. And that is what we keep pretending. I mean, you know, it also makes me, of course, uh, very uncomfortable because although you can argue that Richard Branson is a hypo hypo hypocritical to a much larger degree, you know, you could argue I'm also hypocritical because I love flying Virgin. And, you know, I do take uh, planes a lot for my job and to see my family and so on. And yet I, you know, I recognize the impact that this has on the environment. So, you know, how do you reconcile sort of uh, e the, those of us, you know, even even though we're not in the same position as as Richard Branson to make sweeping changes, you know, we behave just as hypocritically when we get on his planes. We do. And, um, you know, I think that 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 probably we would take fewer planes if there were better trains. Um, so I mean, one of the ironies of of, of Richard Branson's um, airline expansion, particularly within the UK, is that there's a huge amount of anger at Richard Branson for the way he has m mismanaged the the British rail system. Um, and there's a you know a, a large majority of British citizens are in favor of renationalizing re them because service has is seen to have plummeted under privatized rail. Um, and Richard Branson is one of the key pillars in that the Virgin Virgin Trains. Um, you know, I I think many people would would not take short haul uh, flights if we had high speed light rail um, powered by renewable energy. So I don't think we have good choices. That said, I also think it's true we're all hypocrites, and you know that's why I don't believe that this can be left to just individual consumer choices. Because at a certain point, when things that we're doing are so harmful. Um, we, they do need to be regulated. You know, we, we did that with smoking. I don't know about you, but I used to smoke a pack a day and I only quit when I found myself, you know, huddling outside in minus 30 degree weather in, you know, Canada, um, because smoking had been banned everywhere. <laughs> so I'm not saying all these things need to be banned, but I am saying that regulation does help people make the right choices sometimes. And you, you also mentioned a minute ago about some of these geoengineering and, and in your book, you almost call them science fiction solutions, like, you know, blotting out the sun. Um, so were there any plausible science based solutions that you see as sort of the, the great hope for the future? I look and anything we do is going to be science based and anything we, we, we do is going to, going to, going to be thanks to, you know, fantastic technological breakthroughs that have happened in, in, um, the fields of energy efficiency and, um, renewable energy and, and agroecology. I mean, it's, it's, 
I think it's about the scale on which we work um, and the risks we're willing to undertake. And what you know, I, I, I you know, what what I found disturbing about geoengineering is that it seemed like a doubling down on um, you know on, on a kind of thinking that got us into this crisis, um, a, a sort of reckless kind of thinking of well, you know, we'll fix it later, and um, and. So, and I do think it is significant that so many of the backers of geoengineering have ties to the fossil fuel industry themselves or are just heavily invested in protecting the status quo. Because I think most regular people would rather have a solar panel on their roof than talk about turning down the sun. Um, but if you look at it from Bill Gates's perspective, you know, he calls solar energy, you know, decentralized solar, uh, sol solar power cute, you know, uh, despite the fact that it's, you know, starting to power Germany. Um, and, you know, he's spending a great deal of money, uh, funding geoengineering research. So I think if you are a multi-billionaire and a huge winner in this system, the idea of challenging that system is, is, is more unthinkable than, than interfering in the global climate system. So one of the other major parts points in your book is that there is a sort of silent cost to our reliance on fossil fuels uh, that can re can result in natural disasters that we really haven't talked about a lot. And this is what you call sort of a fertility crisis. So I wanted you to expand a little bit on that. Uh, in your book, you describe a time in which you were in in parts of the, the South after the BP oil spill, and you recognize that one of the major problems is that the these animals are dying in the womb or that there seems to be a lot of infertility that happens and, and that doesn't come to light until years after a particular disaster. So can you describe that experience? Yeah, well, um, covering the, 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 the BP disaster in the early days, um, we went out on a boat and, and this was before we were just there right when the oil reached the march, the marshes, actually just the, the very first day that it happened. And that was a real turning point because, you know, while the oil was still, you know, there was still hope before, before the oil reached the beaches and reached the marshes that maybe the impact wouldn't be as terrible as people feared. But once it entered the marshes, um, you know, it was, it was a, a very, very uh, sad day. And we were go, we, we were, we, we were in this boat, a few of us, a documentary film crew, um, and I, and, um, and, and I was, I was traveling with, um, Somebody from the Gulf Coast Restoration um, Network, which is a, a really great group that is has just tirelessly working on land erosion issues in the, on the Gulf Coast linked to oil and gas. And uh, what what he was preoccupied with was the fact that this was spawning season, um, and that even though we couldn't see it, um, there was just a huge amount of proto life surrounding us, and and uh, and you know, and this was spring in the Gulf and, and everything was spawning. And going back and looking at the, at the Exxon Valdez disaster, Valdez disaster, um, the, the greatest, the greatest and most lasting impacts, um, on the fish in Alaska, w um, had to do with this delayed disaster. So it wasn't until three or four years after the spill that the herring fishery collapsed. And that was because, um, the oil hit 
um, those babies, those baby salmon or embryonic salmon, um, at this key moment in their development. And so you just had this species collapse. Um, and, uh, and, and so looking into it in, in the context of the Gulf, um, we've heard a lot of the, of really concerning stories about from d- directly, uh, from fishermen saying that they're not seeing baby fish out there, um, or they're seeing crab, uh, female crabs without eggs. Um, and, uh, some of the, some of the research is, is, is showing that some of the first impacts, um, on different species of fish, ha- um, it, it, it is, is, uh, you know, interruptions with, uh, with the fertility process. And on that same trip, actually, I visited Mossville, um, which is a historic African American community that is sort of, you know, it's one of the case studies of environmental racism, um, because this was, uh, a town formed by freed slaves and, uh, after being established, it was surrounded by 14 massive petrochemical factories and the land and water was just poisoned and, and most of the people have already left. And, you know, it's, there's just soaring cancer rates. But what, what I found out when I was there is that, um, you know, I had read about the cancers, but when I spoke to women, um, uh, who had lived in Mossville, what I heard about was just an epidemic of infertility and, um, uh, and, and that just so many women had had hysterectomies. And this is often just an understudied part of, of science. And, um, because I was going through my own, um, you know, sort of infertility crisis as I was writing the book, I was, I had lost a, a few pregnancies. Eventually I did get pregnant, but I guess I was sort of attuned to this idea. And so I started to notice that this is one of the effects of climate change that we don't look at very closely. I mean, so we know that, you know, in these spills, uh, that, that fetuses and the very young, uh, are, are especially vulnerable. And where this has been really dramatic are the dolphins on the Gulf Coast, where, um, more than in, in April 2014, 235 baby bottle nose dolphins had been discovered along the Gulf Coast, which is just a staggering figure because we know we're not seeing all of them. Uh, and so these are baby dolphins that had, um, you know, died, uh, in the wound or died as they were being born. And, and they were developing um, in this period when the oil and dispersants were in the Gulf. And then there was also an issue around, there had been a, a huge, a very, very heavy snowfall and a lot of fresh water had come rushing in. Um, so it was sort of, you know, what it was kind of a perfect storm of, 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 of stresses that had been placed. Um, and, you know, when species are under stress, fertility is often the, fir- the, the, the first to be impacted. Um, so we know this in the context of something like a spill, but also in the context of climate climate change, we're seeing this happen. I, 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 and, and this first caught my eye when I saw a story about how sea turtles that lay their eggs, you know, very famously on, on beaches, um, you know, one of our most ancient species, um, they've survived, you know, they've survived asteroid attacks. I mean, they've survived so much, the sea turtles. Um, but it's not clear that they're going to be able to survive even, even incremental climate change because what's happening already is that when the eggs are buried in the sand, even if the sand is just marginally hotter um, than it used to be, that the eggs are not hatching. They're cooking in the sand or else it seems that male eggs are more vulnerable than female eggs. So um, so overwhelmingly uh sea turtles are, are being born female. And that, of course, will manifest as a fertility crisis later on. So once I saw that story, I just started looking for other examples of it and, and you know, found a lot of them in different species. 
Yeah, and I just want to underscore that you also in your book say that scientists estimate that the number you gave of, of the dolphins is only 2% of the true death toll, as you mentioned, it's just a small fraction. And of course, you know, this is this seems to be have, have a very strong uh, selective force on the evolution of all of these species. So it really does change everything. But I, I wanted to end, if you had just, just a couple more minutes, on a more positive note. In your book, you also say the resources required to rapidly move away from fossil fuels and prepare for the coming heavy weather could pull huge swaths of humanity out of poverty, providing services now sorely lacking from clean water to electricity. So can you just expand on that? And leave us on a slightly more hopeful note. <laughs> right. So, you know, we started talking about how 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 climate change has bad timing, and and that's because we've been trying to to deal with this crisis within an ideological context, which tells us we can't you know invest heavily in the public sphere, and at, at the thing, and also that we we can't deal with with inequality and and inequality is is a global crisis and it's a crisis within our countries but that um, you know that's really what breaks down our climate negotiations again and again is that countries of the global south are insisting that there be a just response to climate change and and what and that means that the countries that got a 200 year start on emitting um have to lead um, both by cutting our own emissions, um, but also by helping the global south leapfrog over dirty energy, over fossil fuels, and 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 build the clean economy that we all need. Um, because we're seeing right now what happens when China and India, with the population size that they have, um, power their economies with coal. That's that doesn't work for anybody. So there has to clear. There clearly has to be an equity based approach, and it has to. To be one that is demanded not just by governments of the global south, but also demanded by environmentalists and movement leaders in the north. We have to demand it of our governments because it's our only way out. We are all in this together. And this is why I say that climate change demands that we have a real debate about what kind of values we want to govern our societies. Because if we continue to be governed by narrow self-interest, whether at the individual level or at the national level, uh, then we're cooked. We have to cooperate to get out of this. If we do, then we have an opportunity to have what I, I quote a Bolivian trade official at Helica Navarro describing a Marshall Plan for planet Earth. Um, and, you know, it's tremendously exciting. It's tremendously exciting to me it, it, at the, the prospect of, of healing these ancient wounds that date back to colonialism, but also within our own countries. We, we know we need to rebuild our cities. We know we have a crisis, um, in public transit and we know we have a jobs crisis. And if we decide that this that climate change is the crisis that our scientists are telling us it is, then it requires that we respond um, with wartime levels of commitment. And, um, you know, that's, I, I also think what's exciting about this, the emergence of this sort of new, more militant climate movement, um, is that people are no longer waiting for their leaders to act with that sense of urgency. And that image of people sounding the climate alarm on the streets of New York is a really powerful image because, because we're saying, um, this, this is a crisis. And when we believe that in our hearts and minds and, and bodies, and we stand together and say that, then I think a 
we begin a process of demanding that of our leaders that they respond to this with at least the kind of urgency that they responded to the banking collapse in 2008, when all kinds of resources were marshaled and all kinds of rules were broken um, because we were told that um, you know that 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 our future depended on it. Our future depends on on this too, and it's clear that our leaders are not going to name this as the true crisis that it is, or if they name it, they're not going to act like it. So that sense of urgency is going to have to come from below. And I hope that that's exactly what's happening this week as we focus in on climate change. So thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Naomi Klein. Thank you for having me. Indra, I think this is an excellent interview. Uh, There are many powerful parts to it. I think the most striking is when Naomi Klein says, you know, we had the time to take this in steps and to deal with it in a sort of rational way, in a methodical way, and we wasted those opportunities. So now, I think these are her words. She says, there are no non-radical responses left. So we have to choose between radical responses. I will say that I've believed for at least six years or more that the radical response that eventually is going to happen uh, that shouldn't necessarily be dismissed because it'll be the least bad option is geoengineering. Uh, so she's against it. I, well, anyone in their right mind would be against it until it's the only option you have. So I kind of am feeling like it's going to be the only option you have. But yeah, it that's still my feels take. like science fiction to me, for sure. It's uh, hard for me to wrap around my head around it. <laughs> uh, there's enough. There's enough planes in the world to bombard the stratosphere with whatever substance you need. You know, you just need humanity to decide to do it. I mean, look, it would be, it would be nuts uh, if it weren't if it weren't that global warming was more nuts. Yeah, I mean, I look, I knew picking up this book that there was going to be some radical ideas in it, and that she was going to be have strong opinions. You know, I mean, I've, I've read her previous books, but what I was surprised about was just how clearly she lays out the case that we really are in for some major changes. I mean, even just you know some of the stuff that that I focused on a little bit on the interview in terms of the way that climate change is going to affect reproduction of different species and how that has a really strong selective force. And now. also just kill species. Yeah. I mean, on the evolution. It's going to kill of, plenty yeah. of species. So. Yeah. But, but it's, you know, it's going to be a really strong, or it is a really strong selective force. And so, you know, it, it really is going to change our ecosystem. Um, and of course, it's, that's going to change how we interact with the world and, and so forth. And, and she, and she continues to make the point that, look, you know, the world's going to be okay. Uh, we might not be. <laughs> right. Right. So. Yeah. Species don't adapt at the rate that the climate change happens. You know, yeah, but it, she, it happen- and- it's happening so fast. And species exactly. are just one part of it. Um, but she does, she does end on a hopeful note. And I think that, you know, the stuff that we've seen in New York this week is hopeful that people are, are actually galvanizing and talking about this. And it's becoming something that, that, uh, we're focusing on. So that's really good. I hope that lasts and that doesn't just end with the next news cycle. Yeah. It's a moment, but those moments do pass in my experience, unfortunately. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, and you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, potential climate change solutions, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. This episode of Inquiring Minds was brought to you by Backblaze. You can get a risk-free trial at backblaze.com slash inquiringminds. Why should you use Backblaze? 
Over 50% of computer users lose data every year. You can back up all your movies, music, photos, videos, and documents quickly and securely, all for just $5 per month with Backblaze. You can get your data back quickly using Backblaze's web restore or download a file to your iPhone or Android devices using the Backblaze apps. You'll never have to worry about losing data again. So get a risk-free trial today at backblaze.com slash inquiring minds. Once again, that's backblaze.com slash inquiring minds. This episode is also sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code MINDS at checkout. That's M-I-N-D-S. A better web starts with your site. And today's episode is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. For a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, by our former guest, Neil deGrasse Tyson. So to find out more, go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America. 